back to the blessed gospel of Luke in the first chapter of Luke. Uh, it's like a homecoming for us. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at the resurrection and uh, the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now we come back to Luke's gospel. And today is kind of a little bit of a bittersweet for us. Sweet because we come to the last passage of chapter 1. We're going to get out of chapter 1 after today into chapter 2. New horizons uh, we're, we're conquering. And, but it's also a, a bittersweet, maybe a bitter moment because we are leaving chapter 1. Uh, it's, it's been enriching for me. Um, years past, I, I kind of glossed over chapter 1. But studying it and preaching it, I've learned uh, the depths of chapter 1 and the character of God that we can see there. But today we turn, like I said, our attention to the last passage, Zechariah's prophecy there in verses 67 through 80. And really the theme that we find out of this passage is God's faithfulness to save. If, if we could highlight the theme, it would be God's faithfulness in giving or sending salvation. And really, God's faithfulness is the great mark. It's the great theme of redemption for us, isn't it? It's the great theme of Christianity that God has been faithful to save us. That's what our whole faith is built upon. It's, it's the whole foundation of who we are as Christians, that God would prove Himself to be faithful. And that's what Zechariah is continually Hiding, uh, highlighting in his passage this morning because he's going to take us back and he's going to connect the salvation we have in God with the three major covenants of God. The three major covenants that God has made in history that point to the coming Messiah, that point to the redemption found in the coming Messiah, and that point to the life found in the Messiah because of that redemption. If you know those three major covenants, you know that I'm talking about the Davidic covenant where God made a promise to David. I'm going to put one on your throne. You know the Abrahamic covenant where God says I'm going to make a nation of you and, and of your offspring. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. But I'm also talking about the new covenant. The time that we live in now where God is sending the gospel out all over the world. And Zechariah is going to connect salvation uniquely to each one of these covenants. And he's going to paint salvation and describe salvation in connection to these three covenants. And we will see something concerning of the redemption we have in Christ that uniquely fits God fulfilling His promises in all three of these ways. And really what we're going to highlight, or what I hope we walk away seeing, is that our salvation is inseparably connected to God's faithfulness to save us. In fact, when we study the doctrine of salvation, when we preach the gospel of salvation to an unbelieving world, when we even think and reflect upon our own salvation, we should be struck with God's faithfulness to save us in the first place. God's faithfulness to keep His Word and His promise over thousands and thousands of years. And what we'll see is that when God sent Christ and when God secured our salvation, He was in fact fulfilling something He'd promised even in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. So turn your attention now with me to Luke 1. And let's read in verse 67. And we'll come back and begin to walk through it. Luke writes and he's reporting 
what Zechariah prophesied. He says his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who stand in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We find a unique passage of Scripture here, one where Zechariah is pointing forward to Christ, and he's really making a unique connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's ushering in the new age with this prophecy. Telling of a new coming time. Where Christ will now. God will be in the flesh. Now on earth with us. So he's connecting time before Christ's birth. To actually Christ's birth. And I want to point out to you. The first thing we find there. Verse 67. That Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why he's prophesying. And there's a note that I want to highlight there. You know Zechariah. We've become familiar with Zechariah. We know his story. He was um, lacking in faith when the angel spoke to him about his son's birth. John's birth's a miracle. And the angel told him of, of that when he appeared to him. And Zechariah doubted, didn't he? And part of that doubt brought discipline from God. That discipline being that Zechariah would remain mute. And in fact, in chapter 1, verse 64, after nine months, he finally has that discipline removed, verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loose, he spoke blessing God. This is that blessing that he speaks. But what I want to highlight to you is that God's discipline is not eternal, is it? His punishment is eternal for unbelievers, people who reject and rebel against him. That, that punishment in hell is for eternity, but his discipline upon his children is not eternal, it's temporary. And Zechariah here, has been restored. He submitted to God's discipline, submitted to the silence, and now God has restored him to a greater place than where he was before. Not only did God forgive him of his unbelief, not only did God remove the discipline, but God gave him of himself. God gave him the Holy Spirit. So now Zechariah's whole family, Mary, John, his son, and him, all have the Holy Spirit. And he is now being used by God in God's hands. What I mean to tell you with that is, believer, you may have sinned in life and you may be under God's discipline for a moment. But God's discipline doesn't mean it's the end of the road in life. God's discipline doesn't mean you're worthless anymore. 
God's discipline doesn't mean that he's never going to use you again. God disciplines us for our, for our good as a heavenly father to shape us and mold us into holiness and righteousness. And he does restore us just like he did Zachariah. A person can still be used even when they experience God's discipline. Zechariah now has that great honor of prophesying of Christ and his work and all that Christ will usher in in his life, death, and resurrection. And this is his prophecy, verse 68. Really, verse 68 is the point of the whole passage. Each passage of Scripture has a point. They may have several sub-points to it, but each passage of Scripture has a singular main point. This is the main point of the passage here of Luke 1. 67 through 80. It is that the Lord God has visited and redeemed His people. Everything points to this verse. Everything in this passage points back to it. Everything flows from it. Zechariah is fleshing out this statement in verse 68. Praise be to God because He has visited and redeemed His people. That is a wondrous, beautiful truth of Scripture. That's a statement that no other world religion can make. Yet that is the banner truth of Christianity. That's the banner statement. That's the theme of our faith. That God Himself has visited and redeemed His people. I want you to understand the significance of verse 68 here. Because if we get verse 68 right, it escalates it highlights the rest of the passage understand the significance that god himself would descend to us sinful rebellious humanity and that that is a wondrous wondrous truth that really expresses the depths and the lengths to which christ is willing to go to save us that the creator God, the almighty God, the completely holy, completely powerful, all authority bearing king of the universe would come to us is wondrous, amazing, life changing. God has visited his people. He has descended from heaven. He has entered into this corrupted earth that we live in that's tainted by our sin. He lived among rebellious people who spurn His holy name, reject His holy truth, reject His holy commandments. He lived among people who even sent Him to the cross. All for His love. God has visited His people out of love. That's the crux of Zechariah's passage here. And Zechariah is not just saying this because of John's birth. He's not just exclaiming this truth because his son was miraculously born. He's saying this because this is true throughout Scripture. God's visited his people in the Exodus. God's visited his people through the prophets. God's visited his people through Scripture. Most notably, God's visited his people through Christ, hasn't he? You and I can open the pages of Scripture. We can read of the life of Christ and we can see the exact imprint of the nature of God. And Jesus Himself even said, you, you look at Me, you see Me, you see the Father. God has visited us. But, it's not just that God has visited us in verse 68, something He could have done in judgment. It's that He visited and redeemed us. That's an escalating truth. That's an 
escalating addition to God's visitation on His people. God visited us. Praise, praise God. But then He also redeemed us. That elevates the truth of God coming to humanity. We have redemption. We have salvation in this God. Church, our salvation is the truth of eternal importance. That will be the theme of our worship, not only here on earth, but forever. The theme of our worship in heaven will be rejoicing in the salvation of God. That any of us would be there with God. That God in His mighty existence and with His great mercy would even dare to save us. We know what salvation is, don't we? Salvation is the forgiveness of the sinner's sins and the reconciling of the human creature back to God the Creator in a relationship of holiness, righteousness, and purity. God takes those whom are guilty, whom are condemned, who are imperfect, covers them with the blood of Christ and brings them back to Himself in harmony in a perfect relationship. God has brought that kind of redemption, that kind of salvation, and that is secured for us, not by anything in us or of us, but totally, solely by God's grace, God's love alone. That's what Zechariah is going to be fleshing out this morning. God's faithfulness to save in that sort of a way. God's faithfulness to come and bring that kind of redemption. You think, just for a moment, in your own heart, of all the wickedness in your own mind, all the evil thoughts, evil desires, evil deeds you've ever committed in the years that you've been alive. And God alone provides salvation. To wipe away all of that evil. All that sin. And only through Christ. So Zechariah is going to play this out as he highlights these three covenants that I've mentioned. And let's look now in verses 69 through 71 at the first covenant that he mentions. And the first way he paints salvation. You'll see the Davidic covenant. The covenant God made with David. And Zechariah paints a picture of a strong Salvation. A strong, strong salvation. Look there in verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. There's the connection to the Davidic covenant. As he spoke by the mouth, singular, of his holy prophets, plural, from of old, they pointed to one message. Many prophets with one voice point to the coming Messiah, the coming fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We know that covenant God made with David. Second Samuel chapter 7. God said, I'm going to raise up one who's going to sit on your throne forever. David's the king of Israel. The mighty king of Israel. The greatest king of Israel. And God says, I'm going to raise up one from your line who will sit and reign on your throne forever. That wasn't Solomon. Although Solomon, his son, sat on his throne. He didn't reign there forever. That is only Christ, isn't it? And that mighty king who will reign on your throne, David, will be fulfilled after Zechariah's prophecy here in chapter 2. Be the Son of God who sits on your throne. Other Old Testament passages point to Christ fulfilling the Davidic covenant. You look there in Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 18. Let me read that passage to you. It says, Behold, 
The days are coming, looking forward. The, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which you will call that righteous branch. You will call him the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on his throne and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. There's coming one who's going to be a righteous branch, who's going to reign on the throne of David, and he will be our righteousness, and he will offer the sacrifices forever, for eternity, once for all. That's a wondrous Beautiful statement that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the one righteous branch. He is the one who is our righteousness. He is the one who's secured the sacrifice forever. And look what Zechariah has to say in verse 69. About that righteous branch being raised up. God will raise up a horn of salvation in the house of David. That one that's going to sit on your throne will be our horn of salvation. That one who comes from the line of David will be our strong horn of salvation. That term horn is an Old Testament expression meaning strength. Old Testament writers would look at the animals in their land and most of them had horns and they would see the strength of the animal in its horn. So to communicate strength, they would often use that expression horn God will raise up in the line of David a strong salvation a salvation that's strong enough to conquer death didn't Christ do that in his resurrection a salvation that's strong enough to conquer sin didn't he do that on the cross a salvation that's strong enough to radically change instantaneously change our wicked hearts to love God It'll be a strong salvation that's strong enough to last for eternity. No one will snatch you out of the hand of the Father. It'll be a strong enough salvation that's strong enough to give us new hearts in the place of old hearts. Salvation that's strong enough to unite the morally corrupted and the completely stained sinner to the pure and holy person of God. We have a strong salvation that comes from the line of David. We have a strong salvation in Christ. Just as David was the mighty king of Israel, Jesus is the mighty king of our salvation. Zechariah actually goes a little further here. Look at verse 71. That salvation will be strong so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's a beautiful picture of the strength of the salvation. That it easily delivers you and I from the hands of all those who hate us. That's a twofold 
expression right there. Referring to two types of enemies. First and foremost, it refers to our spiritual enemy. We have a real spiritual enemy, don't we? Satan, real enemy. Sin, a real enemy. And the salvation we have in the mighty Jesus Christ strong enough to deliver us from our spiritual enemy. Satan will only deceive you to destruction. Sin will only reward you with death. But Christ, because of His work on the cross, totally conquered Satan. Totally conquered sin. We have a salvation and a mighty King that's strong enough to overcome our spiritual enemy. But it also refers to our literal and physical enemies. Understand that there is coming a day when the kingdom of God will rise up and take its place and never again will another enemy arise within it. There's coming a day when all those who persecute the church, who persecute the Lord, who are against our God will be dealt with severely and in a moment. Right. There's coming a day when the king that was promised to David will take his glorious throne unhindered and he will rule and he will reign for eternity unchallenged. There's coming a day when this strong salvation we have in Christ does away with all evil. You see that at the end of Psalm chapter 1, promised in the Old Testament. You see it most vividly in Revelation chapter 19. I want to read that passage to you. Christ coming back to the earth, not in mercy like He is now, but in vengeance. John writes, Revelation 19 verse 11, Then I saw opened heaven, and behold, a white horse, And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. At the time that Revelation 19 comes true, mercy has run its course. There is no other opportunity for forgiveness. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down all the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who secures our strong salvation. We have a strong salvation because we have a strong king. And that strong king with his strong salvation will one day deliver us from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. All those who malign, mock, despise, and kill the bride of Christ will pay for it. One day, God's mercy will no longer be available to the unbelieving world. One day the bride of Christ, one day the bride of our Christ, will come back to judge and make war. That strong king secures our strong salvation, and that strong salvation marks our safety 
and the one who bought us. Jesus said himself, don't fear man who can only kill the body. What can man do to us? We belong to God. We're marked with safety in this strong salvation. Bought by Christ. A salvation that guarantees our eternal freedom from captivity. Our eternal freedom from persecution. Our eternal freedom from evil. Like you may be wrestling now with a real spiritual enemy. And we as the church may have to put up now with a world that is constantly opposed to God and a world that's constantly opposed to us belonging to God, a world that's constantly opposed to us honoring and living a life for God. But that, because of our strong salvation, is only temporary. There comes a day where we live with Christ forever, safe, secure, by our horn of salvation. Let's move on here to verses 72 through 75. If the Davidic covenant means a strong salvation for us, we now look at the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made with Abraham, and it secures for us a personal salvation. A personal salvation. You see there in verses 72 and 73, Zechariah refers to God remembering His holy covenant and the oath that He swore to Abraham. And it's one, it's a covenant that is one of mercy, one of faithfulness and remembrance. It's a covenant that God made with Abraham that's intimately personal. You know anything about Abraham, you know that he was once known as Abram. And when God called him out to follow him, Abram was what? A pagan worshiper, right? He worshiped false gods. He was an idolater. And God said, you're going to be mine and I'm going to be your God. God showed Abraham mercy, constant mercy. And the covenant itself to Abraham that God promised is that I'm going to raise up you, mighty nation. Your offspring is going to be as the stars of heaven, as the sands of the earth. And then he says, out of your one singular offspring, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Galatians 2.16, Paul spells out that one singular offspring of Abraham is Christ. And haven't all the nations of the earth been blessed in Christ? Blessed with salvation, right? Jew and Gentile alike can find salvation in Jesus. But I want to point you to the personal aspect of this salvation and this promise with Abraham. Genesis chapter 22. You remember what happens there? God tests Abraham and says, take your son, your only son Isaac, and take him up. And sacrifice him to me on this mountain. Abraham does that. Such a foreshadowing picture of Christ. Lays the wood on Isaac's back. And they trek up the mountain. Abraham binds Isaac. Lays him on the altar. Raises up the knife. To slaughter his only son. And God says stop. Stop. And then Genesis 22. Verses 15 through 18. God speaks to Abraham a second time. From heaven. And says in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed 
because you have obeyed my voice. Essentially, God looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, because you were willing to offer up your only son, I will offer up my only son. This salvation that we have in Christ is an intensely personal salvation. And what I mean by that is that this salvation that God offers to you and I is as personal to God as it was to Abraham sacrificing his only son Isaac. You need to realize that, Christian. God is intimately acquainted with your salvation. Personally involved with your salvation to the point of sacrificing His only Son for you. For me. That's why Courtney can stand in the waters and say, my life is changed. That's why we have the privilege of witnessing baptisms. Because God personally offered up His only Son. God didn't just cause salvation to happen. We know that He couldn't just cause salvation to happen. In His perfect justice, a sacrifice was demanded. Jesus is that sacrifice. Our salvation is not just something arbitrary to God, is it? It's something intensely personal to Him. And in that truth alone, you see how much He desires the lost to be saved, don't you? I mean, not only does God command us to be saved it's not just an option he desires everyone to be saved to the point that he commands humanity turn to Christ and be saved but we see the love and the willingness to save in the sending of Christ but that salvation that we have isn't just personal to God it's personal to us isn't it in fact it's the most personal thing in our life uniquely personal to us there's nothing else like it perhaps because it's so personal to god he would have it be so personal to us you look in verses 74 and 75 you see the personal aspect of this salvation that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies by our strong salvation in god might serve god without fear it's a wonderful truth again Because the unbelieving world cannot come before God without fear. Unbelievers stand before God and tremble at His wrath. Tremble at His judgment. Fear their just punishment from Him. But believers stand before God in faith, in confidence, in love, in mercy, and in unity. We now, because of the personal salvation that God has extended can personally serve God without fear. We can enter into the courts of God. We can relate to our God. Have a relationship with Him. We can actually know God and be known by God because of our salvation in Him. You don't just have any kind of relationship with Him either. You look there in verse 75. We might relate to Him and we might render Him service in, verse 75, holiness and righteousness all our days. Salvation is personal for God because He sent His Son. It's personal for us because it enters into the depths of our hearts. The secret places that we rarely venture ourselves. The places that we never talk about. And it makes us holy and makes us righteous 
and makes us pure and clean and new. Your wretched heart, God sanctifies and makes His. God doesn't just forgive us of all the sinful actions that we commit in life. He forgives us of even our sinful desires, our sinful thoughts. It is a personal salvation that is personally involved with you. If Christ has not penetrated into the secret places of your heart, you do not know Christ. Because our Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, will always push and press deeper into your mind, into your soul. This is an intensely personal salvation. Thirdly, real quick. Verses 76 through 79. We now look at the new covenant and we see a far reaching salvation. I don't know if you've noticed, but thus far, verses 68 through 75, Zechariah has been speaking in past tense. He now changes verses 76 through 79 and speaks in present tense, turns his attention to his son, John, and begins to lay out John's role. And John's role is to make known the salvation of God. It's his whole existence there. Verse 76, you're going to be the prophet of the Most High. You're going to go before the Lord. You're going to prepare His ways. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation. To make known that God is here and willing and ready to save. So we look at the New Covenant and we see a far-reaching salvation. The New Covenant is something that you and I live in as believers today. It's the salvation we have in Christ. The ability that we have to know Him because of Him. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And this New Covenant was promised long ago. Some more Old Testament passages. Jeremiah 31, verses 31-34. through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Skip down to verse 33. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. They will, or I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'm going to relate to them. Verse 34. No longer shall each one say to his neighbor and each to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall... All know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. There's coming a day, God says, when I'm going to deal with their sin. Joel chapter 2. Another Old Testament passage. Probably the most quoted Old Testament passage in reference to the New Covenant. Joel says, it shall come to pass afterward. God says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And it shall come to pass. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. Acts chapter 2. Peter quotes that passage. In connection with the Holy Spirit coming. In connection with salvation in Jesus. Romans chapter 10. Paul quotes that passage. In saying that we need to take the gospel to all people. How are they going to hear unless someone's sent to preach to them? How are they going to know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? That's the new covenant. That's the age, the time that you and I live in. 
an age when the gospel goes forth to the whole earth and it is revealed to all people that anyone who comes to Jesus can be saved. That's what John's whole purpose is. His whole role. Give knowledge of this salvation. Prepare the people to see the Lord. And it's a salvation that's deeper than just Israel being saved from their Roman captivity. It's a salvation that presses into the depths of our souls. It's a salvation that's the forgiveness of our sins. A deliverance from the wrath and the justice of God upon sinfulness. It is a wiping clean and a making right before the God of the universe. Move on there. You notice in verse 78 why this salvation is given. It's given because of the tender mercy of our God. So many people grow up thinking God is just a wrathful, cosmic killjoy. Look at what Zechariah says. He's a God of tender mercy. And if grace is getting what we getting more than what we deserve, mercy is getting what we do not deserve, namely forgiveness. God has been merciful in forgiving us because we rightly deserve punishment for sin, right? God has looked at us, sent Christ who took our punishment that we might receive mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And that's not just for the Jewish people. That's for anybody on this earth. Look what Zechariah says next. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That phrase sunrise there, another Old Testament expression of the Messiah. You see it in Isaiah 9-2, you see in Isaiah 60 verses 1-3, through you see it in Malachi 4-2, you see it in 2 Peter 1-19, Revelation 22-16, all over Scripture, Christ is referred to as the light, the sunrise, the morning star. And Zechariah saying that sunrise, that morning star is going to shine on us from on high. Why? Verse 79, to give light those who sit in darkness and those who are in the shadow of death. To shed the light of salvation on those who are in the darkness of ignorance. On those who do not know God. On those who are lost, completely lost of knowing God. Also shine light on those who sit in the shadow of death or under the captivity and bondage of sin which is all of us. This sunrise because of the tender mercy of God is going to shine on those in darkness and in death and give the knowledge of salvation that God will forgive their sins. This salvation reaches to the farthest, darkest corners and crevices of humanity, does it not? It reaches into the depths of our hearts. Depths of everyone's hearts. The Gospel goes everywhere to guide our feet into the way of peace. That those who come to Christ, those who the sunrise shines upon, who have knowledge of salvation, can find peace in God. Forgiveness. The chaos and destruction of this life. The chaos and destruction of sin is met and overcome with the peace of God. The peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4. 
That's the far-reaching salvation of the New Testament. And lest you think you are too far gone to be saved, listen to Paul's words. Paul, who persecuted the church of God and approved of the murder of many, many Christians, says this in 1 Timothy 1, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I'm the chief sinner. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the chief, Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to anyone who would believe in Him for eternal life. I am the chief of sinners, and I am saved, that it may be made clear that if I can be saved, anyone can be saved. We have a far-reaching salvation in Christ. It's not reserved for the elite. It's not reserved for the rich. It's not reserved for the pious. It's for anyone who will turn to Christ and believe. Notice what Zechariah said here in this passage. Because Christ comes from the line of David, we'll have a strong salvation in Him that will deliver us. Because He comes from the promise of Abraham, we'll have a personal salvation where God Himself will meet us in our hearts and wipe us clean, wash us, and make us new. And because Christ is coming into the world, we now live in the new covenant where the gospel, this strong salvation, this personal salvation and personal relationship with God can extend to anyone when the sunrise dawns and shines upon the darkest places of the earth. What a mighty salvation we have in God. A strong, personal, far-reaching salvation in God. And hasn't God been faithful to extend that great salvation to us? I promised it to Abraham. I promised it to David. I promised it to Jeremiah. I promised it to Joel that one day I'm going to send a Messiah who will deliver a strong, personal, far-reaching salvation. And praise God, you and I live today on this side of the cross where we see God has been faithful to save. God has been faithful to send the Messiah. God's faithfulness is what our whole Christianity is wrapped up in. Praise God He's been faithful to fulfill His Word. Praise God He's raised up the righteous branch of David. Praise God He sent the offspring of Abraham. Praise God He has created and sent the One by whom He can pour out His Spirit. The only question that remains this morning, do you have that salvation? Do you have the salvation of God? How do I know if I have the salvation of God? Here's the test. Has the salvation of Christ proven its strength in your life to deliver you from your sins? The captive sins. I can't turn from this addiction. I can't turn from this or that. It's got too big of a grip on my life. Strong salvation of God delivers from the firmest grip of sin. Another test. Has the salvation of Christ proven itself personal in your life? Does God know you and do you know God? Has God's influence, has God's word, has God's salvation pierced even into the secret places of your mind? What about far-reaching salvation? Have you turned to Christ and repented of your sins and trust in Him alone for salvation?
Let me tell you, you can. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 6. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is a favorable time to turn to Christ. Because this far-reaching salvation, anyone at any time, at any place can turn to Christ and be saved. Have you been saved? That's the question. And if you are saved, are you rejoicing in God's faithfulness to save you? That He fulfilled His word, His promise. That for us Christian church, that translates into a new kind of worship, doesn't it? A new kind of devotion, a different kind of passion in our lives for the word of God and for knowing the God of the Bible because He has been faithful to save you. I hope, I pray you know the salvation of Zechariah's prophecy, the faithfulness of God seen in Zechariah's prophecy. And I hope and I pray that if you don't, today you would. You would come to faith in Christ today. Come to know God today.